Hello, and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Alex Ross, author of The Rest is Noise, Listening to the 20th Century. Alex, who is music critic of The New Yorker, won last year's Guardian First Book Prize for this history of 20th century classical music. It has been a great critical and commercial success on both sides of the Atlantic. Björk called it incredibly nourishing and likely to rekindle anyone's fire for music, while pianist Emmanuel Axe found it beautiful, passionate, witty and utterly compelling. What readers have especially liked is the way in which Alex shows how bigger historical forces shaped what was going on in the lives and works of composers. Talking to me from his home in New York, Alex told me about making the links between history and music. Yeah, this was absolutely uh, essential to the idea of the book from the beginning. And really, when I first discovered 20th century classical music in college, at the same time, I was heavily into studying uh, history, uh, European history especially. And so it was all very much woven together in my mind, the lives of these composers and the extraordinary chaotic events that were unfolding around them. So when I came to conceive the book, I really wanted to to write not just about the music, but to use the music as a way of listening, as I say in the subtitle, to the century itself. And I think there's several good reasons to, to do this. First, I just find it an intellectually satisfying and, and provocative uh, way of writing about music, not simply to analyze the sounds themselves, but to see what was going on around them. And secondly, I find that for those coming to this music for the first time, it helps a great deal to realize what pressures were bearing down on the composers, on a man such as Shostakovich living through Stalin's terror, or uh, Aaron Copland writing his populist masterpieces during the period of the New Deal in America and then reacting to the, the red scares of uh, the 1950s and then the uh, you know, anti-communist uh, hysteria of the McCarthy period and, and so many other forces acting upon the music. I think it helps to understand why there is this drastic variety of sounds in the century and why there's some very sharp swerves as composers moved from from one decade to another because the world around them was changing so fast. Mm. You open the book that the literal curtain raiser is Richard Strauss's opera Salome, which was first performed in 1906 in, in Graz in Austria. Can you say why you, why you chose that particular event to, to start the book? One reason was that uh, uh, I just find Salome to be uh, a fascinating piece of music, a very ambiguous piece of music. Some aspects of it can be considered very modern, very revolutionary for their time. In other ways, it it looks back to the Romantic period, to to Wagner. And um, that ambiguity, I think, makes it a good microcosm of what happened in the whole 20th century where, where there were some composers who who were seeking um, new sounds and constantly innovating and others who were not great revolutionaries but who also wrote uh, very valuable music such as Benjamin Britten and, and Aaron Copeland and so on. So I sort of wanted us to send the signal at the outset that when I was talking about the 20th century I wouldn't be focusing just on the revolutionaries and innovators but also paying attention to a lot of music that didn't necessarily fit that narrative. And I also was fascinated by this particular performance because of the cast of characters that showed up for it. 
Mahler, Puccini, Schoenberg, and all his students. And there was the story that the teenage Hitler came from Vienna to see the opera. So he claimed to Strauss's son many years later. And for a book that was going to intermingle the, the stories of music and uh, history, this, this was a, a rather irresistible uh, place to start with you know, the idea that uh, the, the teenage Hitler may have been lurking somewhere in the back of the scene. You've already mentioned the, the Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich, and he really occurs as a sort of pivotal figure in the book, it seemed to me, both in terms of the chronology of it and being, uh, I suppose, a sort of quintessential 20th century artist and having to deal with the forces of, of history and totalitarianism and reach some accommodation. I wondered if, if you saw him in a sort of, sort of pivotal role. Yeah, I think he is very close to the center of the book uh, in that, you know, his his life gives you in, in such a dramatic, hair-raising way uh, this, um, you know, my, my central theme of composers faced with the, uh, the, the rapid-moving tides of history. And, you know, this picture of Shostakovich sitting is in his apartment and the phone rings and it's uh, Stalin mm. on the line. Mm. He begins <laughs> stammering out a, a, a conversation and actually ends up negotiating with Stalin mm. about the terms of this trip to America that the dictator wanted him to take. And um, you know, despite his, his natural shyness and, and his fear of, of confrontation and uh, mixing himself up in circumstances beyond his control, um, uh, Shostakovich uh, did end up um, more or less demanding that uh, certain of his works and, and, and the works of, uh, of other major composers would be uh, taken off uh, a list. Uh, they had been banned, and uh, Stalin pretended not to know mm. <laughs> that this, this had been done, but the, mm. the ban ended up being lifted. So uh, these, these remarkable moments at, at which uh, Shostakovich was, you know, sometimes almost negotiating for his life, other times um, negotiating for his freedom, for partial freedom to pursue his creative path. And you could see it almost as a metaphor mm. for the, the, uh, the predicament that, that composers faced all over the world, you know, whether or not they were living in the midst of totalitarian terror. You know, there was this problem of you know, the mainstream audience and, and what wider audiences wanted to hear and commercial pressures and the pressures of the marketplace and then how do you retain your individuality in in a world that is uh, so commercialized and, and so dominated by trends and i think actually to a remarkable degree this this book despite the the horror of a lot of the events tells a rather optimistic story or sort of a, a, a surprisingly encouraging story of of survival and of a sort of heroic resistance mm. on the part of a lot of composers to those pressures. Yeah, one one figure I thought you wrote about very interestingly was Sibelius, the Finnish composer, whom you sort of take again as sort of emblematic of a particular type of, of figure. And Sibelius has had a very mixed fate. He's been popular in Anglo Saxon countries, he's been he's been rather denigrated in, in France and, and Germany. And I wondered if you sort of saw Sibelius as it seemed to me you were saying that he showed that the the, de the debate between conservatives and innovators was ultimately a sterile one, and it was not really not really going to be fruitful to the to the advancement of music. I do think so. I, I feel that quite strongly. And uh, another, 
main agenda that, that I had in putting this book together was to include side by side you know, not only the, the revolutionaries but the so-called conservatives and to show how all of them can fit into a uh, sort of a bigger narrative of 20th century music which is uh, not so much ruled by ideology, by a, a sort of a, a you know, strong identification with one stylistic current or another. You know, ultimately, it, it comes down to the, the power of the personalities, the strength of these individual voices. And um, you know, there can be composers who are very au courant, who just mm. ended up not having very much to say. And likewise, uh, these, these uh, seeming conservatives can turn out to be hugely important and sort of you know, spiritually inventive uh, rather than uh, stylistically inventive. And so I do, I mean, the sort of constant back and forth between the radical and the conservative, I, I do find a bit tiresome after a while. And, and uh, I don't know whether I succeeded or not, but certainly I, I wanted to move past that constant polemical conflict uh, in this book. And so as a sort of a symbol of many, many other composers who could have been given the same treatment, I decided to devote an entire chapter to Sibelius, who otherwise just doesn't fit into a lot of these grand narratives of 20th century music history. And later on, uh, I did much the same with Britain. Sort of mm -hmm. it's, it's as if I'm sort of stopping the, 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 the forward march uh, yes. of style for a moment and uh, sort of a, a intermezzo interlude uh, and a different kind of writing which is much more biographical, yeah. uh, psychological almost. We mentioned Shostakovich as perhaps a pivotal figure and I thought that the, the Third Reich was a, a pivotal moment in the book and a moment where classical music was sort of put to the test in terms of the use to which the the, the Austro-Germanic repertoire was put, and also the way in which composers reached an accommodation with the regime, or some of them did and some of them didn't. And I, I wondered, though, if your ultimate verdict was that that music, classical music, was put to the test by the Third Reich, but it hadn't really passed that test. It had come out of it rather tarnished by it. Well, I, I don't know about passing a test or not, I think, I mean, undeniably, it, it was uh, damaged to some extent by the, the association with Hitler, by the, by the fact that Hitler himself was a music lover and uh, appropriated Beethoven and Wagner and uh, Enrico Strauss and, and uh, much else besides to his um, uh, diabolical politics. And this is um, something that classical music hasn't quite entirely gotten over. I, I think uh, the, the sound of a grand romantic orchestra can still create mm. in a lot of people sort of involuntary association with a certain aesthetic that, that may make, make them think of Hitler. Mm. You know, at the same time, again, I, I do see certain of these stories as uh, stories of survival. I'm terribly moved by what happened in just in the last few years of Richard Strauss's life. When he, he seemed to have been entirely ruined, sort of outwardly and inwardly, by his association with Hitler, and certainly he was deeply discouraged um, mm. by by the experience. Mm. Something of a broken man, and yet he went on writing music, and he wrote 
metamorphosing for strings and the surpassingly beautiful four last songs music mm. that somehow seems to transcend that horror and and uh, uh, well, metamorphosing you it's as if you're you're looking the the horror in the face and then four last songs mm. uh, floats far beyond it and you know at the same time he's striking up. Uh, friendships with young American soldiers who are music lovers or musicians who come knocking at his door uh, from 1945 on and um, adapting himself uh, partly for his own protection, but I think also out of a certain curiosity and a kind of a cosmopolitan uh, sense of his place in the world. And perhaps you could say the same in a much larger sense about classical music's strange adventures uh, after the Third Reich and its continuing evolution. And then it seems to uh, end up escaping the shadow Mm. of the past. And among the English composers of the 20th century, Benjamin Britten was the one that you you highlighted. Yes. um, You know, there's the entire chapter about Britain and you know many other composers that uh, that I wish I could have written about at length, Walton and, and Vaughan Williams and Tibbet, and so on. Uh, Britain's music has always been very important to me personally. Also, I, I do think he's, he's representative of, of a sort of alternative path that, uh, that existed in, in music uh, after the Second World War. It was the, the heyday of the, of the avant-garde and you know, the, the stories of Boulez and Stockhausen and Zanakis and Cage are actually uh, hugely enjoyable mm. to uh, mm. to uh, put down on the page and and yet I wanted to create a space for for Britain's um, very very different way of making his way and uh, his 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 deep consciousness of uh, the musical past and and the uh, the psychological acuity of the work uh, and uh, I think he he was one of the great opera composers of all time who who managed to uh, write music, which which was in its own way absolutely contemporary. I don't ultimately find that there's anything particularly conservative about Britain. I think he was quite a radical composer, but just not in the sense of of having uh, shocked people with new sounds. How on earth did you manage to produce a discography at the end of this book? It must have been a, a very difficult task to to boil down to such a short list your recommendations. Yeah, well, actually, in the in the paperback, we now have an expanded version right. of the discography. Before, I had um, just a, a sort of a, a handful of uh, thirty uh, recordings altogether, and and now we've expanded it considerably. Mm. And you know, this is still very difficult. First of all, recordings are constantly going in, in and out of print. Mm. You know, record labels collapsing left and right, and, and sort of the the future of the whole recording mm. business is very difficult too predict. And, you know, then everyone has their, their favorites and their their biases and, and prejudices involving uh, one form or another. Uh, so I found that uh, quite difficult to do. And yet it was rather obvious to me, and there are certain recordings that, that I grew up with or that have come to be almost um, you know, synonymous with, with the music in question. So I, I chose those, but hopefully the, the whole present form of the discography is written in a way that, um, you know, there are many other options and, and possibilities uh, and uh, a vast store of recordings mm. of 20th century music which people can pursue.